0: I live up in McPherson, Kansas, and when I'm not traveling on a Saturday where I actually feel like getting up at 630, I would get together with a group of men for a Saturday morning Bible study. And what we would do is we'd sit in a room and we would pick a topic, any topic, and we would just go around the room and we'd find a passage of scripture and each person would read a verse if they wanted to. You didn't have to read, but you could when it came to your turn. Well, one week we were studying the Judges. I expect many of you may know the the great judges from the Old Testament. Judges like Deborah. We forget that she was a judge. We were studying Samson, another of the judges. And my guess is you're familiar with Samson. Big guy, strong, lots of hair. We were looking at Samson's early life and reading about this. And as we were going around the room, it came to one of the guys. And he read his verse. And he said, the boy will be a Nazi, ripe for God from birth. (laughs) And you could hear a pin drop. I, like you, read my Bible a few times. I could read my Bible in, in English, French, German, Spanish, Latin, Greek, and a little bit in Swahili. And I'm pretty sure I've never read that Samson was a Nazi. I would think I would remember that. And other people were similarly confused. And you can see, when someone asked him, what did it say? This is what it showed on his page. Oh! The boy will be a Nazarite for God from birth. Unfortunately, the editors have chosen to hyphenate that word in a very inappropriate place. (laughs) And even if right was spelled, spelled wrong for what he wanted to say, even if this was the case, what it highlights to me is something that I want to focus a little bit on today. That as important as it is for you and me to read our Bibles, it is more important that you read it appropriately. That you interpret it well. This is part of why... I hope none of us get in the habit of not meeting together. You need to be in the church. For those who may be listening right now over the radio, we are glad that they're safe and may not be able to come, but I look forward to when you can get together with the body of Christ. You need to hear from others because their danger is that I might interpret it wrong. And so today i want to look at three little stories in the Scriptures. If you have your Bibles... You can turn to them and follow along. We're going to look through Matthew chapter 25. It will not be up on the screens. I apologize. I didn't send it to your tech people. But Matthew 25, we're going to look at these passages. And I want to show you something that God has been revealing to me that is different than the way I used to read them. Matthew 25. I'm going to start by reading the first little section, verses 1 through 13. Jesus is talking. And our Lord says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten young bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Now five of them were wise, and the other five were foolish. The foolish ones took their lamps, but didn't bring oil for them. But the wise ones took their lamps and also brought containers of oil. When the groom was late in coming, they all became drowsy and went to sleep. But at midnight there was a cry, Look, the groom, come out to meet him. Then all of those bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. But the foolish bridesmaids said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil. Because our lamps have gone out. But the wise bridesmaids replied, no, because if we share with you, there won't be enough for our lamps and yours. We have a better idea. You go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the groom came. Those who were ready went with him into the wedding. Then the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep alert, because you don't know the day or the hour. And my guess is you've been in a church and you've heard that passage preached, and I know I have certainly preached this passage this way many times before. We stress that Jesus is telling us, be prepared. It's the Boy Scout motto, right? We need to be ready. We don't know when Jesus is going to split that eastern sky and come back, or just take us to go home to be with him when our day on earth is over. So we need to be ready. Today is the hour of salvation. It's here. It's now. Don't put it off. We have to be prepared for when that day comes. This is what we preach. That is good counsel. We should be giving the Lord our best. We should be doing everything we can for God, surrendering everything to God, being ready. Don't wait. Do not wait. We do well to listen to that message, but I think there's a deeper meaning here, and we'll get to that in a minute. Next little parable, in my Bible anyway, is is called the Parable of the Valuable Coins. This is verses 14 through 30. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who is leaving on a trip. He called his servant and handed his possessions over to them. Twenty gave five valuable coins, to another he gave two, to another he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But... The servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward to find additional coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, Excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, Master, You gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. Now, the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seeds. So I was afraid. And I hid your valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, you evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed? In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has ten coins. Those who have much will receive more, and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Take the worthless servant and throw him outside into the darkness. People there will be weeping, grinding their teeth. My guess is you've been in a church, and if you've heard this passage preached, and I know I have preached this message every time that I preach on this sermon as well, we stress that Jesus is telling us we need to do what we can, what we can with what God has given to us. You need to use your gifts. And notice, by the way, that nothing in this passage is about being fair. Well, let's, let's be honest about that. We all have gifts, but they aren't equally given. I mean, we can look around and notice that some people just seem to have more to work with. Some people seem to be born with that silver spoon in their mouth, and everything they touch turns into gold. And sometimes we feel like nothing we do ever works out. Why can't I catch the same breaks? So that Life isn't always fair. Uh, this was highlighted to me when I think back into my high school days. My best friend... In high school, was named Robbie Hall. Robbie played the drums in the band. I played the trombone, the tuba, the baritone. We were in band together. We were in classes together. We would do all kinds of things together. And Robbie was a little bit of a twerp, but we would have a lot of fun together playing. Robbie's dad also owned seven banks, and so when we were going to spend the night at someone's house, we went to Robbie's house because it was nice. He had a lot of stuff, and we would get together and spend the night and eat their food and play the games, and swim in the pool, and ride in the dune buggies, and you name it, because we could. Several years after high school, after I had lunch, and I was pastoring up in Winona Lake, Indiana, I remember my mom calling me one night saying, are you watching the Miss Universe pageant? I said, no, I'm not watching the Miss Universe pageant. I don't tend to watch the Miss Universe pageant. She's like, you need to turn it on, Mom. I don't want to. Well, she said, I'm watching the start of it, and they're introducing the main people there. So you have the owner at that time, the Miss Universe pageant, former president, Donald Trump, he's there. And there's the president of the Miss Universe pageant, whoever that was, and the president of the Branson Chamber of Commerce, Mr. Robert Paul. My friend, you see, when he got married, his dad gave him the Branson, Missouri Bank as his wedding present. Not too shabby. How is that fair? That my turpy little friend <laughs> gets to have a bank given to him for a wedding present. My parents were school teachers, and we never wanted for a thing. And as we, I love that we talked about in Sunday school class: being blessed does not mean economic prosperity. We were blessed in many ways, but life isn't always fair. We all don't have the same abilities. We all don't have the same privileges. We all don't have the same possibilities or opportunities. for this passage tells us not to worry about fairness, but just to ask, are you doing what you can with what you've been given? That's what we preach. The servant who was given two goes out and makes two more. And the master gives that servant the exact same blessing as the one who had five and made five more. Well done, good and faithful servant. The master does not say, come on, you only have 40% of what this other guy ended up with. Step it up a little bit. He doesn't say, oh, you doubled it? Wonderful. You still have less than he started with. Come on, you're not pulling your weight. That's not what is said here. It's the same blessing. The exact same blessing. And this is what we often preach. Use your gifts. Don't squander them. Don't worry about comparing yourself to other people or other churches. It's not about fairness. It's about faithfulness. Are you faithful? It's good advice, by the way. You should use your gifts. We all have graces. We all have abilities. We need to use them. There's things you can do. There's interests you have as individuals, as a church. Midwest City, there are things you can do that I guarantee many of your sister and brother churches cannot do. Are you using your gifts to the best of their ability to the glory of God? Be faithful. We do well to listen to that message, but again, I think there's a deeper one here that we'll get to in, in just a minute. The last little section of Matthew 25 starts in verse 31, where Jesus talks some more. He says, now when the Son of Man comes in his majesty and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the nations will be gathered in front of them. He will separate them from each other, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his lot. Then the king will come to those on his right and say, come, you who will receive good things from my father. inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you before the world began. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat thirsty and you gave me a drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me I was naked and you gave me clothes I was sick and you took care of me I was in prison and you visited me then those who are righteous will reply to them Lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and give you clothes to wear when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you then the king will reply to them I assure you that when you have done it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you have done it for me Then he will say to those on his left, Get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything to help you? Then he will answer, I assure you, that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous ones will go into eternal life. My guess is if you've been in a church and heard that passage preached, and I know I've preached it this way myself many times, the message that we stress is that Jesus is telling something that I first really understood when I was exposed to the music of the late, great Keith Green. Some of you may know or have heard of Keith Green, who was a prophet of a songwriter and a singer. If you don't know who he is, look him up on Spotify later today. If you don't know what Spotify is, ask your grandchild, and they will tell you and explain <laughs> it to you. But anyway, one of Keith's songs, The Sheep and the Goats, he ends by saying the only difference between those on the right and the left was between what they did and did not do does not mean that we are saved by what we do. But it does mean we better do something. It's not just about belief, after all. Even the demons believe, and I'm certain we are called to a life that's a little bit higher than that. What we do with our faith, how it shapes us and changes us and makes us into followers of Christ, matters. When I used to pastor in southern Illinois... We would have a midweek Bible study back, you know, when churches had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We had our Wednesday night Bible study, and there were 12 of us sitting around a table in the fellowship hall. And I think the lesson that I was sharing on was on prayer, and we were using an acrostic, ACTS, A-C-T-S to talk about prayer. A stands for adoration. You give praise to God. C is confession. We admit the places we fall in short. T would be thanksgiving in all the ways that we are grateful for all God's blessings. And S is supplication. What do we need? What do we ask for? Well, as I'm sharing this, one dear saint in the church who's been there her whole life, who has children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren in the church, just crosses her arms and is shaking her head. And at some point we say, is something wrong? She says, I don't believe that. What, what don't you believe? You don't believe we should pray? No, I, I don't believe what you said. You don't believe we should get praise to God? No. She said, I don't believe we should confess. Because I have nothing to confess. I never sin in word, thought, or deed. You could see people who had known her for 80 years start rolling their eyes because they know this dear saint. And she was sincere. She, I believe with all my heart, was repeating exactly what she had been taught growing up in the church, heard from her sermons. One of the sad, I believe, unfortunate consequences of our great doctrine of entire sanctification that you must be perfect. And if you admit you're not, you're not quite as you should be. And so we learn to hide what causes us to doubt. We learn to hide the places where I do not live yet as I ought. We hide that. I believe she was 100% being truthful and not trying to be arrogant. She was truthful in what she said. But I also know she modeled that and preached that and taught that to her children. One of them, in his late 50s, coming to me in tears after a lesson on sanctification, because he said for the first time in his life, he realized that God loved him and wasn't finished with him, and being sanctified wasn't about being perfect in action, but perfect in love. Anyway, as the woman said, I have nothing to confess, I've never sinned. And the others rolled their eyes. They knew her, and they'd been around her for decades. And they knew she was sincere, but they also knew that there was little evidence in her life of love, Joy or peace or gentleness or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or self-control. She did not exhibit much of the fruit of the Spirit. She had clean hands, but she wasn't doing God's will. She believed, and the Scripture tells us we should believe, but this, as many others do, point out that we're saved from more than just belief. That's a good message. We do well to heed that. But again, I think there's a deeper meaning here. My PhD is in the early church, and so I studied people who lived a long time ago. And in the early church, there were a group of people called the Antiochians. Uh, Friday, I got to town a little early, and I had some time to pray. I came in here and prayed by myself yesterday in the afternoon before I met with someone. Friday, I was up in Edmond, and so I just went by St. Elijah Antiochene Orthodox Church. Beautiful building. I just love going and praying in places. They're the Antiochians. That's who they are. They were a group who believed the Bible pretty literally. Today we might say they're the God said it, I believe it, that settles it sort of group. The Bible means what the Bible says. But there were another group who lived in Alexandria, and they believed that, yes, the Bible is clear and you can understand, but there's often a deeper meaning, something there. Maybe you're like me and you've read your Bible for a hundred times, and on the 101st reading you see something you've never seen before. And that's kind of what's happened with me in these three passages in Matthew 12, something I didn't notice from these verses. The first section, the young bridesmaids that we talked about, it's about being prepared, right? But what if this story and the others around it are less about the second coming of Christ and more about how we live following his first? What if these are more about how we walk with Jesus that he has come? I mean, everyone in the Bible is someone just like you and me. They are examples to be looked at, to pay attention to. People that we look at, not models to be followed, Jesus is, but examples. We can see how they lived. They weren't that different from us. So what if the challenge here isn't, you don't know when Jesus is coming back, you better be ready. And more, we know what Jesus has told us after he came already. Are we living the life he's called us to live? We too often focus on the event and not the preparation for a lived reality with God. We so focus on going to heaven, we forget that we can bring heaven to earth right now. And eternal life begins, not at physical death, but at spiritual birth. We've already begun to live eternally. Even now, as faint and as shadowed as that might be, the event or the reality of living with God Let's say there was a wedding today at 3 o'clock and I wanted to go and hang out with my friends. I would probably take a change of clothes because, you know, I wouldn't want to have to wear my suit or my tie or my dress or whatever dress attire tie for the wedding I had. We'd probably change. I'd take some money. Chances are good we might go out later, uh, safely of course, to get something to eat and hang out together as a family. I wouldn't just be wanting to go to the wedding. I want to be with people and I would make plans for it. These foolish bridesmaids, and by the way, I have no idea where they find oil in the middle of the night when they go off to get it. But the problem is, they're just interested in getting into the wedding. They don't care about spending time with the bridegroom. They're about the event, not the relationship. And in fact, if you look at it, at the chastisement, at the verdict that the master gives them at the end, what does he say? He doesn't say you were lazy, he doesn't say you were foolish, he doesn't say you should have been prepared. A couple years ago, I was in Nepal working to help start the Free Methodist Church over there again. And we were coming out of Kathmandu, the city of over a million people that has one airstrip. So things get bogged down quite a bit. We had a connection flight in Istanbul, Turkey, before coming back to Chicago and making my way back to Michigan, where I was pastoring our Free Methodist Church at the time. And as we landed in Turkey, we were about an hour late. My associate pastor and I go running through the airport because you had to check through security again It's a little more stringent in Turkey than it was in Nepal. We get through we go running to the gate We see the plane up, We breathe a sigh of relief. I go up to the counter and hand the clerk my ticket She says, I'm sorry. The door's been closed. You can't get on. Is that ever happened to you? Oh, you're kidding me. I just want to go back across the Atlantic home. Nope. The door is closed. Now, don't feel bad for me. The airline put us up for a night in Istanbul, and there are worse places to spend a free evening than in Istanbul, Turkey. But that's not even what the master says to these foolish virgins, is it? Sorry, doors closed, too late. No, what is said is in verse 12, if you still have your Bibles open. The master says, I don't know you. And in a good Jewish context, the unstated follow-up statement to that is, and you don't know me. What you think to be true about God is not true. You don't know the Father's heart. So when you look at this next section, the one who had the valuable coins, who are expected to do something with them, to be faithful with all this stuff that they've been given. Don't squander your gift. I wonder if the distinction here in faithfulness has more to do with what they know about the Master than with what they do with their actions and how productive they are. What if it has to do with what they think about the master's heart and character and wisdom? Look at the third sermon. Master, I knew you'd be a hard man. I mean, he basically points him as some mafia don. You steal from people all the time. You blackmail, you pressure. You take things that aren't yours. I was afraid, so I went and I hid it. And the master says, and I believe there's a lot of incredulity in his voice here. The master says, that's who you think I am? You, You think you know me? You you knew that I've stolen where I haven't sown? You, You knew that somehow? And notice that is not at all what's happened here. Nothing in the text indicates that the master is giving things that aren't his to give. The money is the master's. He hasn't stolen. He's taken and sown what was his and given it for the sake of the world for these three servants. But this wicked one doesn't know The master's heart. The wicked one thinks it's all about, I'm supposed to do more, be bigger, grow my church. It has less to do with being faithful, to be grateful for everything God has given us, and to respond out of that faithfulness. No matter how much we've given, fair or not, the trust that God blesses us, God does not show favoritism. Jesus tells us this isn't about what do we get out of it or what have you done. About what He's done for us. Lent is this period of remembering that Christ came and Christ suffered and Christ died, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, not because you came up with a great strategy for how to further take the gospel into the community, which is a good thing to do, but not the reason that Christ saves us. How great the Father's love for us! I sang that somewhere really recently. Ephesians two eight nine says it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works. So then nobody can boast. And if that is true, I believe it is, if it is true that we are not saved by what we do, then why do you think you'll be condemned because of what you do? It's not about your actions, for good or for bad. It's not about your performance about the Master's heart, and the Master loves you. God wants you to be reconciled with joy. You have but to ask for forgiveness and surrender. Verses 31 to 46, the last section. We have people doing things here. Things you better be doing, or you're going to be judged. But tell me, who is being judged in this passage? Are they individuals? Or are they nations? All the nations would be gathered in front of him, verse 32 says, and he will separate them from each other, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Hear me clearly, I believe very strongly that we are responsible for what we do as individuals, but I also believe that we are responsible for what the group we belong to does. My friends, I hope you pray. I hope you vote. I hope you are active. I hope you call on your elected officials to represent us well, to seek God's face, to turn from our wicked ways, to, to humble ourselves as a nation that claims to be built on the gospel, but too often only fosters greed. A couple years ago, another one of my superintendent friends and colleagues lamented that one of our free Methodist elders was testifying on Capitol Hill before a Senate hearing. And they said, why is she getting involved in politics? So they realize how messy that is? And my first thought was, I hope... You do get involved in politics. I would say that to you as your superintendent. I hope you are, because the world needs godly women and men who will stand up for what they believe and speak truth into a world that too often will let anything go. We should be involved. We should let our light shine. We should speak out. We should do things as a people. You should do things as a church, because you're not alone. The faith is not just about you and Jesus. Our relationship with the Lord is intensely personal, but it is never private. You're not alone. Now the persons who first heard Jesus speaking, they thought of community before they thought of individuals. In my last church where I pastored, we had about 750 refugees and immigrants who were involved in our church. I've shared before, we had five services every Sunday. Two were in English. The others were in Dao and Nepalese, and in Haitian Creole. And we had about 100 people who spoke Swahili that came to our second English service. And so you have kids running everywhere. Different cultural approaches to how you take care of family. Many of the Anglos would be upset. Where's their mom or dad? Who's watching these kids? But for our Africans, the village raises the village. We're all in this together. No problem with you disciplining their children, whereas I would get upset if you took my son aside and spanked him. That's not what we do in our culture. It worked for them. This broader view of community, a little different. Community cares for community. I love... Love, 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 Midwest City. How you care for one another. I love how you are becoming a community who've been one for years, and God has not done with you yet. And I believe "Come as you are" is more than just a phrase we might say or a song we might sing on a Sunday morning. I know it's exactly how you practice or preach and live, from Dr. Clint all the way down. This is the message we convey: Come as you are. God loves you, and He's not going to leave you the same. But notice something else in this passage about community and the communities we belong to. Those who are righteous receive blessings. But those who are going to receive terrible things are never called unrighteous people. I think they were people often just like us, also. Maybe more often than we care to admit. They love the Lord, they just don't know God's heart as well as they think. Hey, my hands are clean. When did I not do that? I've done everything you told me to. Well, but God wants more than this. I came to church. That's the point, right? I mean, what more do you want from me? I put money in the offering plate, 10%, right? Because, you know, I don't want to give too much. We've got to do the right amount. that God asks, and God says, I, I, I don't want your duty. I don't want your obligation. The offering is not a tax not something you should do because it's what you think good Christians should do. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own those hills as well. I don't need your money. I want your heart. It's not about what we did or did not do. It's recognizing that when we're head over heels in love with someone, we'll do anything to be closer to them. We'll do anything they call us to do. We can't wait to be in their presence. It's creating a community that so spreads the love of faith. We can't wait to come on Sunday and be in church because I get to be with sisters and brothers who love the Lord and love me, warts and all. And they accept me just as I am. And there's something about that place where I grow closer. Something beyond what I give, what I do. It's what God is doing. And notice, neither the sheep nor the goats is there called when they're separated, have a clue to what they're doing. They don't really realize it. When They both say that. But one group knows the Father's heart. And it's a heart of love. God cannot love you more than he already does. God will not love you less. No matter what. No matter what. And make no mistake, we all sin and fall short. I do more than I want to admit and the purpose of the Christian life is not to be sinless. It is not. The purpose of the Christian life is to be like Jesus, who was sinless. If we focus on the wrong thing, we become like the Pharisees. Clean hands. And the point of salvation, it's not to go to heaven when you die. It's not. The point of your salvation is to be close to God. And wherever God is, There is heaven. During this luncheon season, may we draw closer to God. Here, in the midst of our frustration, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of separation, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of death, the midst of joy, the midst of expectation, the midst of new birth, the midst of excitement, the midst of hope, the midst of planning, the midst of a future. Even now, here, knowing that our sins are forgiven. We're separated from God. Can't blame those sins. Christ paid for our sins on the cross, that's not the problem. It's our attitude. Am I self righteous? Or can I surrender and know the Father's heart? One of love. May you be women and men who know the Father's heart. He's not vindictive, He's not keeping a tally on if you messed up today. He's not Santa Claus, making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. We're all naughty. (laughs) We've all sinned. But we can do things that a holy God calls us to do. And we can become holy as God is holy, day by day, moving towards that entire sanctification, practicing disciplines, praising the Lord, sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron, and giving glory to God. God loves you. This is his heart. God is not finished with any of us yet. Thanks be to God for that. May you continue to love one another. May you continue to love this world as you love the Lord. And may God continue to bless you and use you as you share that
1: love, that knowledge of God with others. Amen? Amen. Amen.